You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America and become a successful resident or fellow in the speciality of your dreams. Dr. Alonso Osorio is board certified and residency trained in both emergency and family medicine and will be bringing you 20 years of his personal experiences, struggles and motivation. We'll be chatting with people like you to talk about the lessons they've learned along their personal path, how to make an impact and how we can all benefit from it. Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show. Hello, superstars. This is your host, Dr. Alonso Soria, and here I am back again with episode number 23. And today I have a Colombian fellow of mine that just recently matched. So I'm going to concentrate on this episode along with Dr. Escobar, Dr. Freddy Escobar to speak about what is his experience of successfully matching into neurology. And we connected via the internet, and I felt that an experience like his could be of significant help for the people right now that didn't match. And if you guys match, obviously you could relate to his uh, personal successful story. So Dr. Freddy Escobar has joined us. He's currently living in Orlando, Florida, and he's relatively close to his uh, future training program uh, through the University of Central Florida in Orlando, based out of Osceola Regional Hospital. And we're excited to have him. Uh, thank you for joining, Dr. Freddy Escobar. Thank you, Dr. Osorio. Thank you very much for inviting me. That was a, a very nice and flattering introduction. No, yeah. So he's a Colombian uh, fellow. I'm from Bucaramanga, and Dr. Uh, Escobar is from Neiva, Colombia. And uh, tell us about uh, where do you go to medical school? Yes, so I went to medical school at Universidad Sul Colombiana, which is in Neiva. Neiva is located towards the south of the country, southwest. It's a public university, uh, similar to your school as well. And uh, it's a nice region. Uh, it's, it's very hot. <laughs> I can tell you that much. Uh, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with the region at all, but there's a lot to it. It's very nice. It's uh, kind of like where I lived most of my life is a kind of intermediate uh, to small type of uh, city. So um, that's pretty much where I grew up and where I spent most of my life. Before that, I lived here in the States until I was about eight years old. My parents are both university professors, and uh, they're both professors at the same school where I went for medical school. Cool. And uh, I'm uh, extremely uh, delighted to know that uh, you've been a successful foreign medical graduate matching in uh, neurology, which is a competitive specialty, and it's a categorical position. Is that correct? Yes, it is a categorical position, so I'm, uh, I'm very happy to have matched into uh, my, it was actually my, my number one rank, so uh, very excited to uh, have that opportunity and to, to know that I'll start working just a few months from now, in July 1st. And I can tell uh, that you have an advantage of, uh, over me. You don't have an accent, and I think it's because of the fact that you spend your first eight years of your life here in the United States, and I don't know if that had to play a role or gave you a handicap when you came for the interviewing because I can tell you your English is so smooth and I would say that's one of the tips of advice that I would uh, recommend to all the 
Colombians or any foreign medical graduate uh, across the world to probably polish a little bit more before you even go through interviewing process. So congratulations on that. I know you speak a little bit of French as well, huh? Yeah. Um, so I also lived in Montreal after I finished high school um, before starting medical school. In terms of that being an actual advantage, uh, I think that was probably part of the reason why I, I got a job as a medical assistant here in Orlando. I had that for a short period. And uh, the office I was working at was particularly interesting because it was very it was a very multilingual setting. Most patients were Haitian and most of the staff was Haitian. So there was a lot of French going on. And I also caught a little bit of uh, understanding a bit of French Creole, uh, which is what they speak mostly down there in Haiti. So uh, definitely languages, um, I, I think that's uh, a good asset uh, to have. I think it's, it's important to brush up on your skills or your, you know, your skills in whatever language you're trying to learn. And um, not only that, but also just uh, living here in the States is, is also an advantage. I feel that a lot of uh, people just apply from you know, their home countries and they're not very familiar to a lot of social context and a lot of uh, very subtle aspects of what it's like to live in the States. Yes. And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about when you decided, I guess after leaving here, you went to Colombia and said, you know, I'm going to become a doctor. After I become a doctor, I want to come back to America. What was your, your mindset and your thought process of wanting to return to the United States? Because you obviously have no problem with your visa. Nobody has to sponsor you or nothing because you have a U.S. United States passport, correct? I'm a citizen. I'm a citizen of the United States by birth. And uh, I think that's definitely an advantage in terms of, well, right now I know that there's a lot of people who match but are concerned with visa appointments and the whole J and H visas, uh, some problems that are, um, I, mean, I don't know the issue very well though, but being a citizen is definitely an advantage. In terms of what made me decide to come back to the States, I mean, my, my story is a, a bit particular. I lived here as a kid and then when I went to Colombia, I mean, I was eight years old, so just adapting to life in Colombia, even though both my parents are Colombian and Spanish was always spoken at home, it was still a uh, quite a bit of a culture shock, you know, just living in a different country and adapting to it when, when you're a kid uh, has a lot of things, uh, you know, like interests, for example, interests in toys or sports, or I wasn't very into soccer, for example. I remember just a, a bunch of you know, little details of, you know, when you're a kid, but getting back to where I was going to, definitely deciding to come back to the States had to do with doing a rotation here in the United States as a medical student. I was in my ninth semester and uh, during a vacation period between my ninth and my 10th semester, I, I went to New Jersey and uh, I figured out, you know, I was told by the residents how the whole step thing work, how the whole USMLEs work. I didn't know anything about that until then. I thought it was something out of my reach because everybody always talks about the USMLEs like it's some sort of mystical thing, uh, like it's something that nobody can achieve. But it, it's really not like that. Yeah, it, it's so weird since you say that. Yeah. It's like, it feels weird. Like somebody talks to you about it. Like, is that even possible that I could become a doctor uh, in another country? And uh, I never even contemplated the possibility of coming back to the States until I did that rotation. Even though, I mean, I always had an interest in living in the States ever, you know, since I went to live to Colombia, I was always thinking about, well, you know, maybe eventually I'll, I'll have the opportunity to go back. But I never thought of it as something that would happen during the middle of my training. I thought maybe at the very end of it, I thought maybe 10 or 20 years down the road would be something I'd consider. I, I didn't know what the process was. And I learned about it from other international medical graduates. I remember there was one from India and there was one from Iran at uh, 
where I did my rotation in New Jersey. And uh, that was pretty much what set me up for getting into all of this. And, you know, before that, I didn't know what UWorld was. I didn't know what First Aid was. I, didn't, I, I never heard of, of any of those things. And uh, definitely, um, I think it's important to create that sense of community between the foreign medical graduates because that is what makes people go forward. You know, even, you know, in my case, I had all these advantages as a citizen here in the States and I, I never even thought about it because nobody pointed me toward that direction. Correct. And since you say that, our listeners, please uh, join our Facebook group so we can get the conversation started. And if you have any inquiries or topics that you want to touch upon, just feel free to post uh, your comments. And that's extremely useful, not only for for me, but as you said, it's extremely important to get the community together. So obviously, these two people that you met in, in New Jersey can explain you that their hopes were potentially to come to the United States as doctors as well, like you were, like you decided to do, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, sorry. Do you were in JFK Medical Center in Edison, New Jersey then? Yes, uh, JFK Medical Center. So you came back to Colombia and you had all these questions within yourself and you're like, what am I going to do next? What was that process like? You got to Colombia and what happened? Exactly. So I got back after that rotation and I started noticing uh, a lot of, I started seeing things differently. Just the attitude that people have towards, um, you know, your training in Colombia is a bit different I remember that the coordinator of our internship program, we, you know, in Colombia, you know, that we do our internship before we graduate. So I remember that the way that he approached us when we would ask for offsite rotations or anything that was kind of special or different from the ordinary, there was not always a positive response. Uh, they weren't very supportive and, you know, their answer was always limited to, well, you know, our hospital needs interns, so it doesn't make sense for us to send you somewhere else. And uh, personally, I just felt very discouraged that, you know, I didn't feel that my own future was in my hands. I didn't feel that I was uh, worthy of choosing my own path because of all these limitations set by the administration of my school. And it's so sad that you bring this up because that was the same attitude that I had from the people from my medical school. And it seems like, I don't know if there is envy or what, but they want to keep you there. They don't want to even open your eyes or help you to find your wings to fly away. You know, I don't know what's their, their concern or, or the mindset that is happening, but it, obviously in 20 years, it hasn't changed much. Uh, well, unfortunately it hasn't. Um, I mean, it's still very much the same, at least in my school. I know It's changing in bigger cities. Uh, I know a lot of the schools in Bogota, a lot of the private schools are, are a bit more open to letting their students choose what they want to do, letting them choose electives and letting them do rotations offside and uh, encouraging them to pursue the USMLEs or if they want to you know, apply for residency in some other country, they kind of provide the tools for it. And I think that's kind of the most ideal scenario. And it's what I see in medical schools here in the United States. I noticed that medical students are very much empowered and uh, there's a lot of dedication to their wellness. And um, I'm sure these schools here in the States invest a lot in making sure that their students become successful physicians and that they're also happy doing whatever they want to do. And uh, I think it's important to give people the tools to succeed. So obviously you got no help from the local attending. So how do you get time to do all these things, the studying, the process uh, of coming here to do clerkships? Really quickly, tell us how you accomplish all that in such a small gap of time. Well, from the time I graduated to right now, it's been a bit more than two years. I graduated in December 2017 and uh, it's you know, March uh, 2020. So yeah, a little bit over 
two years. The really uh, just having the time to dedicate myself to taking the USMLEs and all of that, really it's because of support from my family. I was pretty lucky in the sense that I, I didn't do my social service, my rural year. Um, my parents supported me to pursue whatever I wanted to do and uh, to just you know, study for the tests and apply for residency. So that's pretty much what I did. And I, I was lucky to have that support from both my parents and my sister. Um, so the tests are expensive. Uh, obviously, your parents, you know, when you're working in pesos and paying in dollars, that's a significant financial investment. So were your parents mostly the economical supporters through this process? Definitely, yes. Uh, my parents were, uh, they provided for everything I needed. And uh, living with my sister here in Orlando was also a big advantage. She works here as a dentist. So just to have a place to live. And I help around a bit with the house and uh, I, I cook for her and we have dinner together. So it's kind of a, it's a nice dynamic that we have. So uh, definitely it's exceptional. I wouldn't say everybody has that same opportunity and to have also matched here and be close to my sister. And, you know, my parents are pretty much just a four hour flight away. I think that that's awesome. I'm very fortunate for that. Easy to fly out from Orlando to Colombia. So, uh, Freddy, I saw that you were successful at passing a step one on your first sit down. Same thing goes for the two CK and the CS, and you already took a step three. You're an overachiever, like I did. Being an American citizen, why did you take the step three? So uh, I took step three. The reason I actually took it was I was kind of panicking after I applied because like two weeks had passed and I, I hadn't. Um, gotten any invites for interviews yet. So I just said, no, I, sh I have to take this test as quick as I can. So I applied for it. And the funny thing was I got caught up with the whole interviews afterwards and I didn't really have enough time to study for it. I actually dedicated like a week to study for that test because I couldn't extend the eligibility period anymore. I got to that point where I had to, you know, it was either take it or lose the money. So I just, I just said, I'm not going to. Wow. And you made it. Yeah, it was, uh, I honestly thought I was going to fail that test. I, I took it in early January and uh, it was tough. So tell us about the deadline. How did you structure and plan ahead? Okay, I am ready. I have a step one, a step two, and step three. I don't have to worry about my visas. I have a fantastic English. I didn't have to take the rural service in Colombia. I just came straight here. I have fantastic, phenomenal familial support from your sister, your parents in Colombia. You have this fantastic environment, which I'm going to tell you, this is lucky. This is, I would say, close to perfect. I hope someone is going through the same experience because not many of us have the luck of having had been born in America. So you get all this done, you line yourself up. How do you time yourself to launch yourself towards the application process for the fall of 2000, you match on 2020 match. So for the process of the fall of 2019, correct? Yes. So my first objective was to have everything ready by September 2018, but I failed to do that because I, I just didn't have the time for it. I, I realized that I should have started studying for the USMLEs a lot earlier. I started studying for step one two months before finishing my internship. I was in a rotation that was relatively easy in terms of time. Um, I got off every day kind of like at 1 p.m. or so. So that's when I said, okay, I have to take advantage of this. I don't have any calls or anything. So I'm going to study for USMLE step one. So that's when I started. And then I graduated. You know, after you graduate, you're all happy. You're celebrating with your friends. So I did a lot of slacking off for maybe December, you know, around uh, 
holidays. And then after the holidays, I just moved to Orlando and I said, uh, I'm just going to study full time and, you know, help my sister around the house or whatever, but just, just have a place so I can study and have no distractions. So that's what I aimed for. And my plan was to have step one and step two CK ready by, so that was January, 2018. I wanted to have everything ready by April. And uh, of course, when you're studying for it and you start taking self-assessments and you realize that it's very much a marathon, it's not a race, Uh, you can't cram. I was probably more, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I was very used to cramming a lot of um, study material when I was in medical school. And um, studying for the USMLEs is completely different. And I realized that as I was going through the process, I also took step two CS around May. So when the time came, it was about August and I was, I already had step one. I already had had step two CS and I was studying for step two CK, but I didn't have the time to get it ready. I didn't feel like I was ready for it. And I just decided to let it for, you know, postpone everything a year because I didn't want to rush the test. My scores on step one were already very average. I got a 220 on step one. So I said, well, I prefer to have a better score on step two CK than to have two average scores and risk not getting many interviews. And since it's such a, it's a major investment to actually apply because application costs are considerable and traveling for interviews is pretty much as expensive as it is to apply. So I ended up just taking a semester off, actually. I, so I took the second semester of 2018 to be at home with my parents. And uh, then afterwards, I just started again with Step 2CK. I took it and uh, I got, you know, I pretty much got ready for, you know, to get to where I am now. So your life for a while was 100% just uh, helping your sister around the house, studying most of the day. And then you went back to Colombia and you studied even more. And, you know, were you used to standardized testing? Because sitting down and passing everything at once is rather impressive. Uh, do you think the fact that you read English and speak English will help you go and kind of read through the, the questions faster than most of us? I don't know if that's true. The way I see it, studying for the USMLEs and reading uh, question banks, it becomes a skill, really. There's a lot of strategy that goes into it. You kind of get a sense of if the STEM is structured in this way, then the answer is most likely to be this one. So I think a lot of it was really just practicing. And I think anybody could have the same results or even better, regardless of what they're spoken English uh, proficiency is. I know that I've met people that have amazing scores and uh, they barely speak any English. And I think that's probably attributed to the fact that everybody reads medical literature in English and everybody, I mean, I want to say everybody who's a physician has a higher capacity for reading and writing in English than they do for speaking. So yeah, I think everybody's pretty much on the same level in that sense. Incredible to see that. You're not the only one that has said that before. You see these people that have impressive, unbelievable scores in paper, but in person, they're not what they are in paper. And you have to be a very well-balanced applicant. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that a lot of these people should try just having the experience of living in the States or just being around people that speak English. And uh, I think that that actually helps because a lot of, at least from my point of view, a lot of your application is very subjective. I mean, there are objective measures, but a lot of your success in your interviews depends on how you talk to people. And 
you know, very subtle things. And uh, I think that's much more important than people actually, you know, I think people take it for granted. Yes. Anyone like a mentor help you through this process to get you better and better and make you a stronger applicant before you actually apply for the interviewing? So um, actually, no, I think that was probably one of my mistakes. I, I didn't seek advice in terms of what my personal statement should be or um, how I should structure my, my application. I spoke to one guy who had matched. Uh, he studied in Colombia and uh, he's also in neurology. Um, he recommended a, a book. So I read it. He said that, you know, there was some interesting reflections of how interesting it is to be a neurologist and maybe you'd get some ideas, you know, for your personal statement from that. So that was actually very helpful because uh, I did structure my personal statement around that. It, it's a book called Looking Down the Rabbit Hole by uh, Alan Robert. I think that's the correct name. And yeah, so pretty much, yeah, that's the one. So in that sense, I think I should have probably looked for more advice. I think I probably would have had a, a bit more interviews to choose from if I had uh, gone through that. Wow. So we're sort of letting your match. This is awesome. Obviously, neurology was your only and first uh, residency of choice. So you had no second guesses. Uh, tell us, how do you go through a successful match? What's the secret sauce to make it all, make it happen and, and make it fantastic, successful dream? So um, definitely the, the first part of it is to have a good application, well-balanced application to try to highlight what you're best at and try for your application to convey what you're good at. And uh, I think I worked hard on my personal statement. Uh, and I think that since um, it was spoken to me uh, during my interviews a lot about my personal statement, I think that was probably something that some people overlook, but it's very important to dedicate yourself to it, have it reviewed by somebody who speaks English as a first language, preferably somebody who knows, maybe has a, an English major or some sort of background like that. I didn't do that. But in my case, uh, I mean, I've, I've always read in English, so I think I, I probably did a good job with it. But yeah, in terms of applying and uh, actual, I don't know if there's a formula or if there's a, a secret sauce to how to match. I think that I was either very lucky or I just did things the right way. I mean, it definitely turned out I got a good outcome from it, but I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of things that I didn't do the right way. And uh, I'm sure that I could have had a, an even better outcome in terms of um, just having more options to choose from. Um, I'm happy with what I got because I got my number one option. But I think that if I were to recommend what I did to somebody else, it wouldn't turn out the right way for them. I wouldn't recommend based on my own experience because I think, I, I mean, it was a, a lot of it was luck and a lot of it was a lot of subjectiveness and uh just the people that interviewed me i think they like me i think a lot of it had to do with that to be honest with you <laughs> that's extremely important that uh, first impression you said that you did quote unquote many things wrong or things that you looking back would have not done again what were those things that when looking back you realized you could have done better because i guess when we learn more from our mistakes than from our successes so I think the first mistake, so I spent two years into this. I think in the first year, which was 2018, I think my big mistakes that I did 
that year was trying to do everything. Uh, so I did rotations and I was also studying for the USMLEs. I was away from my home here in Orlando for about four months. So, you know, just trying to rush everything, uh, I think that wasn't very helpful because, uh, you know, in the end, I didn't have the time to do what I did. And I had this big time constraint and it was kind of like I was kind of on a race to have everything ready for September of that year. And I, I wasn't able to do it. So I think that was definitely one mistake that I did. Definitely another mistake was not finding uh, like a good number of people to ask for their opinions, to ask for their advice. Uh, I pretty much went with my gut a lot and I wouldn't advise that to anybody. In my case, it worked out, but it's not something that would work out for everybody. I think I just those things I mentioned, I think that that's already a lot. Just rushing through, I think because of that, I didn't get the ideal step one score. I was more concerned with having everything ready by September than, than I was concerned of doing things the right way. So um, I just think that people need to pace themselves and try to do things in a realistic way. Try to not have too many expectations in terms of thinking that you can do everything. And uh, something that I tell a lot of people is try not to do too many things at once. A lot of people want to, they want to work and they also want to study for their steps. I think there's a time for everything. I think there should be a phase where you can, you know, do that. You can do multiple things, but eventually for the USMLEs, you need a dedicated period. You, you need at least maybe a month of dedicated period where, you know, you're just studying for your tests. I didn't necessarily have that for the whole period I was studying because I was doing different things and I was kind of scattered all over. So I didn't really have a, a good structure in terms of, um, yeah, I think that was probably a major issue I had. I didn't organize myself as well as I think I could have. So Dr. Score had said it on a, over and over and over to our listeners. Let's make it clear. There is no need to rush this process. There is plenty of time. I know that during those processes, many things in life happen. People are worried about their financial stability. You were lucky or I was lucky that we were single. Uh, we had no kids. So there is many factors. But I can assure you, if you rush it, if you don't spend enough time in America, if you don't get the proper rotation, the outcome probably is not going to be good. Obviously, you have to have a very slow and a structured process because the ECFMG will ask you to explain yourself on any gap that you will have through those two or three years that you're spending on becoming a doctor in the United States, correct? So listen to his advice. And he then was extremely careful at timing his uh, application through the electronic residency application system. How do you do it, Dr. Escobar? So since my initial plan was to apply for the, the previous season, for the 2018 to 2019 uh, match period. From very early on, I, I got the ERAS token and uh, I started uploading letters as soon as I, I had the chance. I finished a rotation, so I, I talked to my supervisor and asked for a letter and they'd upload it right away. How many, sorry for interrupting, how many letters you had uh, total? Because I know I was going through your uh, uh, CV, you did quite a bit of rotations, six or seven rotations in the United States. And before the interview, you said you also spent quite a bit of money yes that's right quite a bit of so, money so your letters of recommendations were solid from these attendings from those rotations 
Well, that's the thing. I waive my rights to see them, so I don't, I don't know what they say. But from, based on interactions from interviews, uh, a lot of the attendings that interviewed me for uh, residency positions mentioned that my letters were very strong. Some of them knew the letter writers uh, personally or professionally. So uh, I, I think those letters were definitely helpful. But I also think that it's possible to get quality letters without having to bust the bank. In my case, since I started this whole process without having my step one scores, uh, a lot of the places I tried to apply to initially required them. So again, since I was rushing it, I said, no, well, at that moment, I thought it was a good idea to pay you know, these uh, agencies that offer rotations. If I look back on it right now, uh, you know, looking back, I don't think that was a, a wise choice. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody because it is it is expensive. I mean, it's about $500 per week plus living expenses. So usually a four-week block would cost $2,000 and then you're, you're living in a different city that you're not very familiar with. So I wouldn't say that was a bad experience because I met a lot of very interesting people along the way and I got good letters and... I don't know if I would have achieved what I've done without those experiences, but uh, I definitely think it's better to do your tests first and look for observerships at you know university hospitals, some places that have a better reputation, I think, not, not just in private practices, because most of what I did was in private practices, and it was paying a bunch of money, um, and I could have gotten maybe even better results um, spending less money. So uh, that's something that I've always told a lot of people, you know, hey, I did this, I paid this and that agency, but I wouldn't recommend you to do the same thing unless you're really in a rush because they, they place you very quickly. You just get in touch with them and all right, your rotation starts in, I don't know, three or four weeks from now. So um, I think that's an advantage in terms of, you know, when you're rushing through things, it, everything just kind of makes sense. But looking back on it, it wasn't the wisest choice. So obviously these rotations are expensive. You said about $2,000. So you use a, a recruiting company, let's call it, that locates you and finds an attending physician across the United States. In this case, many of them were in Maryland. So they find this doctor. Is this doctor getting paid by the recruiting agencies a little bit or how that works? Yes. So they are getting paid. And the interesting thing about it is that they're also affiliated with multiple different agencies. So um, when you talk to other students that are rotating with you, you ask them, hey, what company did you get your rotation through? You know, you find out how much they paid and everybody pays a different price. And some of them actually get in contact with the attending directly and they pay a much lower price. A considerably lower price. Just to give an example, there was one rotation where I paid two thousand, and I met a guy who paid three thousand for that same experience, same amount of time, and another person who paid a thousand. So, you know, these companies are are taking a huge cut. In my opinion, it's profiteering. They, I don't think it's ethical. Um, but I, I did realize that it's a major issue, and uh, I don't know you know, who can do something about that. But a lot of it uh, is... Uh, my jaw has just dropped. I mean, I cannot believe it how 
there is a friend of mine that we brought into the show, uh, Chase DiMarco, that he's working into developing and a way to place foreign and international medical graduates into clerkships and rotation in the United States without affecting us the way that they people take advantage of us. But obviously, there is a need. There's people that are willing to pay this much money. There's people that have savings, obviously dedicated for this. And it is just one of many ways to do things, correct? Yeah, and that's true. I think a lot of people do get taken advantage of. But part of the problem is the fact that these companies invest very heavily in uh, ads. If you look up clerkships or rotations in the United States or uh, rotations that accept international medical graduates, if you look any of those terms up, you'll find these companies and they're going to be the first searches. So again, somebody like me who's rushing through it, you know, that you're more likely to, to fall into, you know, companies like like these companies. Of course, I mean, I won't mention any of them by name. Uh, I definitely shouldn't. But uh, I've heard different experiences from different people. And I mean, it's well agreed upon that they don't have the most honest and straightforward practices uh, in terms of how they run their business. Well, but they gave you a letter of recommendation and it seems that they were solid. Exactly. What was the, the interviewing process for you? So you said that you were like super worried. You took a step three. You wanted to have it ready for the interviewing process. You were not getting any interviews. What was that time lag? Why the delay happened? Why were you so much freaking out about not getting any answers? Well, I think part of the reason most people get a lot of anxieties because the first place you look uh, for answers is forums, and, uh, you know, there's these Reddit spreadsheets uh, for all specialties. And the anonymity behind these sources makes for a kind of a toxic environment. So people aren't as nice as they should be on, you know, Facebook groups or you know, a lot of people, you know, upload stuff with uh, fake profiles. So, you know, when you have a doubt about something, the first people you look answers to, you know, the, they don't usually give you any sort of reassurance. So... By the time I first applied, I, I didn't actually know that medical schools upload their uh, medical student performance evaluations at the first week of October. I was just yeah, waiting. That's what we call the MPSE or the Dean's Letter. Exactly, the Dean's Letter. So I just thought that you started getting invites right away. So maybe three or four weeks passed and I hadn't, you know, I hadn't received any invitations. So I, I kind of started freaking out and I started, so what am I going to do about this? So that's when uh, I got a spot for step three and everything. But throughout the whole season, I want to say most interviews came in, most invites came at, at the end of October. Some of them were very last minute. Um, I, I, I had a, a couple of interviews that I was invited to maybe four or five days before the actual interview because uh, a lot of people cancel. So from my approach to it, um, as an international medical graduate, I was told to apply very broadly. So I, I went to the AMA website. They have this resource called Freda or Frida. Fantastic. Uh, Fantastic resource, by the way. Yes, uh, I recommend that to everybody. It's a very comprehensive database of all GME programs, uh, residency and fellowship programs. And um, I looked for all of the neurology programs that had, you know, these programs post their minimum required scores. So if I had the cutoff for a particular program, then I'd apply to that program. Uh, the total number of pro programs I applied to was about 90. Wow. Which was literally every program in the country that I had the minimum score to apply to. So 
most of them were categorical because neurology programs are shifting towards being mostly categorical. But then again, I also applied to a few preliminary internal medicine programs because some of them were advanced programs. Advanced means that it's years two, three, and four. So you have to apply separately for your first year, your internship, and years two, three, to four, which is the advanced uh, portion of your training. So in terms of invites, I know that a lot of uh, medical students here, usually they apply to about 40 programs, maybe 50, depending on what their scores are. And they get invited to most of those programs. In my case, I got nine invites for um, categorical neurology programs, and I got two invites for preliminary uh, internal medicine programs, and then I got one invite for a transitional year program. So in total, I got 12 invites out of almost 100 programs that I applied to, including categorical neurology programs and prelim programs. Freddie, how much money you spent? Just applying, I think it was over a little bit over 2000 and traveling, you know, including Airbnbs and plane tickets, some of which, you know, some of these plane tickets were bought at the very last minute. It was about, in total, about 5000 in, in expenses related to uh, the whole interview season. Freddie, don't take this personal, but many of the questions that uh, these uh, chats that we have from Colombia, and I try to kind of join those chats, are medical students that are hoping to become a doctor in the inner sites. These numbers might frighten them. I ask you at the very beginning, uh, did you come from a wealthy family? Obviously, your sister is a dentist. They do very well in the United States. Did, did she help you with cash money in dollars? Or do you pay your, your way through this uh, working part-time or on the side? I mean, can you advise us just to see how you manage the financial aspect of this that is so frightening for many of us? Yes. Uh, so a, a big part of what made it all possible is I've always had a very good credit. <laughs> I've had credit cards since I was a child. My dad always encouraged us to have a, kind of like joint credit accounts. Yeah, yeah. For our listeners that have never been in America, that's a big deal, creating credit in America. And obviously, you need a social security number to do credit. So that's ex exceptional as well. So, you know, creating credit takes a long time, well, it's five to 10 years to have a good credit score. So you're saying you had a credit score that was off the hook. That's awesome. Go ahead. Yes. Um, so uh, a good amount of available credits and a good you know, credit score. Um, I have some credit products that I've had since I was a child. So that was definitely very helpful in terms of just making everything happen. My father really provided most of it and earning in Colombian pesos, it's, it's difficult because it, it ate through a big portion of his savings uh, for, for, you know, to pay off credit cards. But also um, I had a loan from my father and I have a cousin who works in currency exchange. So I invested pretty heavily in my cousin's uh, business. So, um, it's actually been very profitable and at the current moment, pretty much independent in terms of taking care of all of my expenses, except for living expenses because I live with my sister. So um, that's been possible because of, you know, these, this currency exchange versus my cousin manages in Colombia. What would you advise the regular Colombian, the regular international medical graduate that comes from India, Africa, Australia on how to get ready financially for this? Definitely, I'd say that it's ideal to have a job as a physician in your country before, before moving into the United States. I think maybe a year, um, if you handle your finances well enough and if you focus as much as you can on saving, I think, I think you, you're, 
you already have a, a big head start. Okay. So 13 interviews, thousands of dollars in credit card. What was next? So you go through interview number one. Do you smash them in a few weeks or you spread them out? What was the interviewing season for you like? So my interview season started the last week of October was the first interview I had. I think that, that was a really good experience because that was the transitional year program uh, that invited me. So that was the first one. I think it was October 21st. But most of my interviews happened between um, November 5th and November 25th. So they were all crammed up, most of them. And then I had two interviews in December and one interview in, in January. So pretty much um, since uh, I was available most of the time, then I was, uh, I, I mean, I, I canceled some interviews because some of them, you know, there was a conflict uh, between dates, you know, the dates that were available. Usually programs, they give you a set of options. And if you can't, you know, make it to any of those options and they put you on a wait list. So I was waitlisted for more programs. But um, in terms of just going to interviews, it's definitely an advantage to have the time to travel to all these places. Um, during that time, I also had a, I was working as a medical assistant here in, in, in Orlando that helped financially a bit. But then it was also hard to find that, you know, I, I had to make up for some of the time because since I was traveling and I couldn't, you know, go to work. So I had to let them know ahead of time. So it, it, it all just got in the way. And uh, I had a, it was an interesting experience the whole interview season, but the structure of it was, uh, I mean, I, I wish I, I could have had a bit more freedom to choose. A lot of these programs really invited me last minute. I, I'm, I'm sure I wasn't their first option and I'm sure a lot of people canceled. And so I, I think if they invite you early on, you have a better chance to structure your interviews in a way that's more convenient for you. So out of 13, how many you canceled and how many you traveled to? So I ranked 10 programs. I'll look at it from the ranks. I pretty much canceled all the prelim interviews because most of them just got in the way with the categorical neurology programs. Like, for example, I, I remember there was this one, uh, there's a USF internal medicine uh, program. Yeah, right here in Tampa, Florida with me. No, no, but it, it was one in Oak Hill, Oak Hill Hospital, a bit north from the Tampa Bay area. And the only day I had available was the same day that I interviewed at the program where I matched at. So uh, there was a lot of situations where I was waitlisted in this program and I was waitlisted in that program. I was, I was trying to find, you know, I was constantly getting into ERAS and looking at the calendar and seeing if anything opened up. And I always had to, I mean, to me, it was more important to go to a categorical neurology interview, uh, obviously. So that's ultimately what happened. Uh, I ranked just 10 programs, nine of which were neurology programs. And the other reason I canceled the prelim invites was because I didn't get any invitations to any advanced programs. So it, it didn't make sense to spend a lot of effort going to, you know, prelim interviews when I already had a good amount of uh, category. It was, it was really, um, it was a gamble in a way, but. You just said something huge for our listeners that don't understand what is a prelim versus a categorical and then having an advanced position. Can you explain that briefly coming from someone that went through this hassle? Yes. So there's different types of programs. There's categorical programs, which put you through an entire residency training program from start to finish. So in my case, uh, uh, the way a categorical neurology program is structured is from 
postgraduate year one, PGY one to PGY four. So you pretty much start as an intern and you end the program and you're a neurologist. That's pretty much um, as uh, simple as it gets. Then there's also preliminary programs and these programs are mostly structured around internal medicine. In general, neurology programs have PGY one is mostly internal medicine. So preliminary programs are pretty much just that. They're the first year of internal medicine and nothing else. And then there's advanced programs that they offer you years two, three, and four of neurology training. So in my case, I didn't get invited to any advanced programs. So it just didn't make sense to spend a lot of effort going to preliminary programs because I was going to rank them last. I mean, they were going to be my backup option. And ultimately, I just ranked a transitional program. Transitional is a little different. So it's kind of like a type of preliminary program, but it's a bit more broad in terms of training. So you also do a couple of surgery rotations and OBGYN rotations. I just ranked it because I like it and because of location. It's also in Florida. So that's the reason why I put that program in there. And I had a good gut feeling from that program, even though for somebody who gets into neurology, a transitional year program isn't... um, I mean, it, it doesn't open the same opportunities as a prelim does. Dr. Escobar, who taught you about all these uh, things that I had to learn on my own? Do you listen to someone, somebody advise you, or do you just kind of learn on the go? So I learned that from uh, other people who had matched, um, people I reached out to. I think the most helpful people that I had the chance to talk to were the people um, on a Facebook group of Medicos Colombianos and USA. I think that's probably the best resource in terms of finding somebody you can actually trust um, because, you know, it's somebody who has some sort of affinity to you because we share that same nationality. We're both Colombian. So there's kind of a, there's a sense of community and a, a lot of the good advice I got, I got from people on that group. Wow. That's fantastic. So Freddy, this is fantastic. You scheduled this all the way until late November, maybe one in January, things are getting cold in the United States. Yeah. You come to the rank order list. What's up with that? It's so confusing. No matter how many videos, how many um, tutorials. Tell us more. How, how do you match these days? The actual match is a very complicated algorithm. It actually won the Nobel Prize for math and economics in 2012 or 2011 or something like that. So it's a very sophisticated system. It's, it's designed so that the applicants have more power to decide over where they're going to be working than the actual programs. And programs can decide if they participate in the match or if they withdraw from the match and they choose, you know, they just cherry pick from their applicants. So there's different approaches. Um, that means it. What I just mentioned is what they call as all in or all out. So if you run a GME program and you want to choose which one of your applicants are going to work with you, then you offer them pre-match positions and you just withdraw from the match and then you just choose your own people. Most programs prefer to uh, let it all, you know, rest in the hands of applicants. So you go through the match and... You rank the programs as an applicant, and the programs also rank their applicants on a list. Nobody knows how you rank them. Um, there's a lot of, there's obviously some sort of communication that goes on between applicants and programs, but it's discouraged. Uh, the NRMP, which is the National Residency Matching Program, Residency Matching Program, 
they discourage you from getting in touch with your programs afterwards. And they also say that applicants should rank based on their personal preference and nothing more. And to not match based on your perceived uh, probabilities of where you're going to match or where you think you're most likely to match. Okay. In my case, um, I did get some communication from programs. Ranking was a really tough decision because uh, I liked all of the programs where I interviewed at. Um, I, I, I really liked all of them. And I want to say my top three programs were kind of equal in terms of the program. So the tiebreaker for me was really location and convenience and uh, family. Uh, I think that was kind of the tiebreaker for me because uh, I just personally believe that that kind of goes hand in hand with having a better quality of life, just being close to my family. So it was really hard to decide what programs to match for, uh, to, to rank first. And especially because at, at the program where I actually matched, they did not communicate with me at all after the interview. And a lot of people say, hey, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, I matched at a program and uh, I wrote them a love letter and they didn't write me back, uh, but I still ranked them first and I matched there. So a lot of people have that experience. I think that was my own experience as well. But yeah, it's really all based on personal preference and uh, the algorithm does what it does and it tries for everybody. What, uh, what, what about a residency program director? Do they wink at you or tell you, hey, you're going to be cool with us? I, I kind of see your rank as high on the list. Do you think you, you should listen to those kind of, hey, teasing you to match and come to my program? I really like you. Or tell me about that. Like, how, how do you get around that stuff? At least personally, the, the post-interview communication I had with programs, I felt it was very sincere. On my behalf, I actually changed what my favorite program was a couple of times. So before actually applying, my you know, UCF program was my favorite program. And then somewhere throughout the season, before I was invited, I, you know, I just got more convinced about other programs. And I was having a tough time deciding which one I, you know, I was interested in more. And then I was invited to an interview by my favorite program. So then, you know, that, that was the moment when I said, oh, I have a chance at, you know, staying in Orlando. So I was really happy about that. And, uh, you know, then when I actually went to the interview, I kind of had a good feeling about it. And ultimately, I, I went with my dad and I ranked them first, even though they didn't get in touch with me. Because it, it's hard. Uh, I felt that I had a good chance at other programs. I felt that the program where I matched at wasn't necessarily that interested in me for some reason. You know, you always have these thoughts when you're going through the whole uh, match process. You were obviously looking for geographical location. What were you looking for a uh, residency program in the United States? I'm going to tell you the truth. I think they're all fantastic. They're all excellent. There might be some stronger, some weaker, some are community-based, some are university-based. What were you looking for on those programs from the academic point of view? other than the location. Let's take the location aside from this decision. So for me, again, um, I don't know if it would be good to advise this to anybody, but in my case, it was all how I felt about the program. It was really subjective. It was a, a gut feeling I had about the program. I, had, I went to a different, you know, different tiers of programs. I interviewed at some programs which were very well established, and I also interviewed at some programs that were very new. And a good lesson that the whole match process and the whole interview season left me is that really it just comes down to you. One program isn't better than any other program. Uh, a program is only as good as the people who are part of it. And 
wherever you feel that you're more comfortable and wherever you feel that you're going to be happy, I think that's the best choice for you. So at least in my case, I really liked three programs that are new, that don't even have their first class. And um, I just felt that I liked those programs very much and I ranked them a lot higher than other programs. So at least in my case, prestige and name weren't um, that much of a factor. And most of it really boiled down to how, you know, just going with my gut, basically. <laughs> that, that's great advice. That's fantastic advice. So you obviously recertified the rank order list multiple times because you changed your decision, especially that the mm-hmm. first program, right? Yes, every, I'm sure everybody changes. I changed it at least probably five or six times. My first choice, I really only changed it once. So it was UCF at the beginning. I changed it. Then I changed it back. But what really changed the most was kind of like the first five programs. I just changed them in order. I knew that, you know, this is my top five, and I was really happy with those programs. And I said, well, to me, all these programs are kind of equal. Um, So I, I feel, you know, just as positive about all of these programs. But I don't know. It's just that some, some days I just woke up feeling that I, I wanted this program better than that one. So I kind of changed the orders around a little bit. Hoping that dating life is not like that for you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is a, a lot of the reasons why I changed the orders of, of certain ranks was because of program directors reaching out to me. Again, uh, I'm sure I can't mention it by name because it's probably a violation or something, but I got good feedback from a lot of these uh, program directors and they reached out to me and, you know, to me. So so that still happens. They say, Hey, I like you, Dr. Escobar, come, I can assure you, I'll offer you a spot with me. Come over. Exactly. So still happens. Yeah. So I had a, a couple of programs and let's say they have four spots. So they'd call me and say, you're in my top four. If you rank me number one, you're surely going to match in my program. So to me, you know, the, the weird thing about that was that I would think then what happens if I rank that program differently? What happens if I rank it number three or number four? Would that mean I won't match? So to me, it was, there was a lot of anxiety behind that because I submitted my rank list and then I would just think about, oh, man, why didn't I rank that program first? I, 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 oh you know, my God, you even regretted your final submission, huh? So I wouldn't say I regretted it, but I had a lot of thoughts. I had a lot of thoughts about, well, you know, there's this uncertainty that I'm gambling for because I I was gambling for it. I was, I put my number one, even though I didn't have any communication with them at all. And I just, you know, I risked it um, in the sense that I could have had certainty about matching a lot earlier than actually waiting for the the whole match day. How much of, of this is a gamble? How much of this is luck? How much of this is a connection with the program? And how much is this God just kind of helping you out? I honestly wouldn't know. Um, I think it's a combination, right? It's a combination of a lot of things, definitely. Some people say that they even have negative experiences at programs and they still rank them first and they match there. And a lot of people say that they get really positive post-interview communication. Some people get phone calls even, and they don't match with that program. So a lot of it, I think a lot of it is based on how random it is. And since it's an algorithm and it depends on how other people rank, what mostly decides where you match at is your competition. So how everybody else is ranking, how everybody else submits their rank order list. I think that's the main, the main factor. 
And uh, a lot of these uh, residency spreadsheets, uh, you know, these Reddit spreadsheets, I think a lot of it contributes to you feeling, you know, kind of more anxious or more secure, depending on, you know, you're seeing other people and, and they're saying how many people are ranking this or that program first. So you kind of have a little bit more information about the other applicants. And ultimately, it's everybody who decides where everybody matches. It's, it's the applicants that have most of, the, most of the decisive power in the end. So tell my Colombian friends, my Indian friends, anybody across the world that wants to come here, hey, this is how you need to set up for the match. Kill your anxiety. What's the tip? What's your, your number one uh, tip of advice? Yeah, I think a, a, a very important tip is to stay away from forums and those Reddit spreadsheets. And I mean, it, it really provokes a lot of anxiety when you're, you know, when you're checking those things every day and you look at your program and you notice that somebody put an X next to ranking number one or ranking number two. So you, you immediately think of it as, oh, I have, you know, somebody else was competing for my spot. You know, you're always thinking about these things. And, you know, even before the, Match week is from Monday to Friday. I wasn't feeling very confident that I would match, even though I had, you know, all these, you know, good, you know, I had all this good feedback from a lot of program directors and such. And I felt that my interviews were fairly successful. Like I felt comfortable in all of these programs. And um, so, yeah, I wasn't feeling very confident about matching, but I mean, ultimately I did. The first thing, you know, when I got the email, I just sighed in relief because it was... So that's the first day of match week when you tell uh, yeah. Dr. Freddy, you have match. Exactly. So after that, I just felt that, you know, uh, this big weight, uh, you know, was lifted. And I just, you know, I was much more comfortable, you know, for the following days because I, I knew that I was going to match into a program where I was going to be happy because I liked every program on my rank list. So that's another good word of advice is don't rank programs you don't like because, You know, if in my case, I was anxious, you know, just thinking about, you know, if I was going to match or not, you know, what if you're also, you know, you have another um, concern, which is what if I match in a program I don't like? So, you know, try to avoid that because that's kind of something else that gets in your mind. I'm going to tell you the truth. Uh, one of the happiest day of my life this far, always other than playing sports and winning a tennis match or a championship, I think it was the day that I passed a step one. That's one of the happiest days of my life. And two, I didn't go through a match process like you because at the very end, I was asked to drop off the match. But I bet that's probably the second happiest day of my life and then getting married to my wife. How would you rank in order those moments of excitement and happiness in your professional career? What was the happiest day of your life? I think the happiest day was when I found out that I was invited to interview at my favorite program. I think to me, the, the impact that had was for some reason, I just felt a lot happier just knowing that I had a chance. And also when, when I found out I matched there, I think probably that and just graduating. Uh, to me, my, my graduation day was very special. My dad, even though my dad is not a physician, uh, my dad is a, uh, He's pretty well regarded in my university. He's an engineer and uh, he's uh, one of the leading researchers at my university. So he talked to the, the president of my university and uh, he actually gave me my diploma. So I, I think that was a, a, a very uh, special and very emotive moment for me. 
I don't know what order I'd put them in. I'd probably say graduation first, then the day I was invited to my interview, and then the match day. I think those are probably the, the three happiest moments I can think of in terms of my career. Wow. So match week comes to an end. Friday comes around. The program that you match is released at Friday, right? Yes, Friday. So, so you open an envelope or just open your, your in my case, was envelopes then. You open your website and boom, Osceola Regional. Yep, exactly. So, uh, I mean, that was just a huge relief. Uh, I was very, very happy. I was just, I was just thrilled to, to finally know where I'm going to be spending the, you know, the following four years. So what do you do after that? You went out, uh, had a drink, celebrated, you called the program, you called your dad, you went to Colombia, you stay here. What happened? How you celebrated that? So that was very recently and we were already quarantined and everything. <laughs> so I told my sister and uh, I told my parents, I told my closest friends. And uh, I mean, I, I did have, you know, a couple of, uh, um, I had a couple of uh, glasses of scotch and uh, I just sat here at home and didn't do much um, and then I just immediately when I got the email from the program coordinator I started the whole uh, onboarding paperwork right away <laughs> there is so much stuff to do that's that's a whole nother process applying well you don't have to worry about applying for a social security but applying for a social filling the attorney's letters getting in contact and sizing for your scrubs your lab coats how do you want your name to appear uh, your badge uh fingerprinting, picture taken. It is exciting. I, I think from now until June 30th is the fun part. And then when July 1st comes, you're like, holy crap, here I am, you know? You know, I'm so excited. I already did most of the onboarding paperwork. Even, you know, all these online courses, you know, all the HIPAA stuff and OSHA stuff. I was actually excited going through that. It's funny, you know, I, I think I've probably done a lot of those courses, but just knowing that, you know, it, you know, this is my job. This is what I'm going to be doing. So it's very exciting. You know, I, I already went to get my fingerprints and everything. And I, I try to do everything as soon as I got it, just out of the excitement. of. How do you see life happening and moving along the next four years? I feel very positive about how things are going right now. I mean, a, a huge advantage is I don't have any debt right now. Um, I paid off all my debt, really. And uh, I have some savings and my dad has some savings and we're thinking of uh, getting another property here in Orlando. So um, I'm feeling very optimistic in the sense of just having a lot of freedom, really, um, a lot of financial freedom. And uh, I don't, I mean, I think this is probably the first time where I felt that I don't have anything to worry about. I'm sure I'm going to have a lot of things to worry about when I start working, but I mean, at this very moment, I'm just very relieved and all I have to think about is walking my dog and just sitting around watching TV, hanging out with my sister, and that's pretty much it. I'm, I, I, I've never been so relaxed. <laughs> this is awesome, Freddie. Uh, I guess you have explained this in such a nice and funny and special way that many people are going to be liking this episode because I think we needed something like this to celebrate Match Week, and I wanted to do that by celebrating you, and we're going to have a prominent neurologist here in the United States. And I don't know if you're going to end up doing a fellowship or not. Uh, I would advise you to do uh, stroke or neuro interventions like my friend, uh, Dr. Vela, Duarte, Vela Duarte. But, you know, who knows? Who knows what's going to come down your path? You might like seizures. You might like uh, movement disorders. You know, you name it. 
There's so much to choose from. Uh, I just like everything. Uh, I don't. I'm not particularly fixed towards uh, one specialty yet. Uh, I like. I think I like the outpatient type of lifestyle a bit more. I, I'm interested in neuromuscular medicine a lot, but I think I'll figure it out as I as I progress through residency. It's too early to say anything because there's just so much. There's so much. It's it's really hard to to know what you're gonna do from you know such an early part of my training so let's get sentimental who do you want to thank and use this media to thank um my family um my dad and my mom and my little sister and my older sister the five of you huh yes awesome bro well anything else you want to tell our international medical graduates that will be going through this painful exciting moments uh, coming within the next few months as they get ready to get their application in line. Any final advice? In terms of final advice, I think it's very important that uh, whenever uh, you're applying and you want to get ready for interviews, everybody says, be yourself. And uh, it sounds like it's not much, but it, it really is good advice. You have to live here in the States and you have to talk to people here you have to understand uh, expressions and you have to understand the way people talk here, their sense of humor, uh, their interest for small talk. If people don't walk up to you on the street and say, hey, I like your t-shirt or something like that, then that means you probably don't have a very pleasant demeanor. People here are extremely friendly and everybody wants to talk to you. At least, I don't know, I think that probably happens you know, on a daily basis. So I think that's good feedback in terms of if you're likable um, by, you know, standards here in the U.S. I think it's very important to not only focus on scores and having a good application, but also just being a well-balanced applicant and, you know, just uh, adapting to life here in the States and just having fun while you're also doing it. Because a, a lot of this process is very subjective. A lot of it is just people liking you and that is a huge advantage if, if you're uh, an agreeable person and if people like to be around you i think you already have a you have a, a much better shot than somebody who has 260 and can barely hold a conversation <laughs> i think your dog is calling you out to take him out to go potty but yeah. uh, one last thing one shout out uh to dr shay data she's a colleague and friend of mine and dr uh Varuna Grawal, two of my uh, most recent guests, they dedicate themselves to do this. And Dr. Ac uh, Data actually works a lot on the psychology of interaction with uh, United States citizens and talks very much about what you have just said, how to make yourself a more attractive applicant by being a very empathetic person and doing the small talk and the little things that could give you an edge. Yes, that, that definitely pushes your application a little bit. I heard that uh, episode you had with her. And actually, she was a resident when I was in JFK. When I went to JFK, I was only there for a month. I think she was probably in her second year or third year. I just remember her as a, like a very strong person. You know, I have that image of her as a, a very straightforward person. And uh, she seems like she, she knows what she's talking about. <laughs> I agree on that, and uh, I don't think uh, you can find a better advisor than Dr. Tara. So, well, Dr. Freddy Escobar, it's been an hour and a half of your time. We're going to be posting this time this uh, show soon, and I hope that we got the message out there to our listeners. Remember, 
Dr. Frescovar has said, don't rush it. Find a mentor and don't multitask. Don't try to do too many things at once. Take your time and collect your finances, collect your family, find a group that you can probably exchange ideas with, a reliable group. And if people put bumps on the road and they don't want to let you get out of your country, you know what? Just follow your dreams. Even if it takes years, just get it done. Dr. Escobar, I thank you from the bottom of my heart and all my superstars across the world that are listening to this show, please remember, share, subscribe, leave me a review because sharing is caring and we're here for you. Thank you, Dr. Escobar. Thank you very much. Just to add to that, also have, have some fun while you're at it. Have fun, guys. Have fun. Freddy has said it. Have fun. So on the end of the no-shows, I'm going to have Dr. Escobar's uh, contact information in case uh, you guys want to reach out to him probably for some, some tips of advice. You can find all those questions through me and, you know, feel free to keep uh, giving me feedback and I'll keep asking crazy questions. All right, then uh, do I give him my email or something? Go ahead. What would that be, the meeting, uh, uh, the, the email to contact you? Okay, so uh, anybody can reach out to me if uh, you need any advice or if uh, I can help you in any way. If you're interested in neurology, if there's anything that you know you want from me, I'm more than willing to uh, reach out to you as well. You can write me an email at freddy, so it's F-R-E-D-D-Y, E3M at gmail.com. That email and uh, I mean I'm I have my phone with me at all times so I'm I, I'm I'm probably going to answer pretty quickly. Remember, he said that has plenty of time in between now and June 30th after July 1st. Don't bother him. So Freddy F R E D D Y E 3M at gmail.com. Doctor Freddy Escobar, thank you very much. Have a blessed day, and I hope we get a lot of good download. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Have a good one. Thank you, buddy.